You're listening to Idea Collider, a show that explores the world of asymmetric learning. On this show, I will sit down with pharmaceutical experts and business leaders to discuss how to embrace uncertainty and the different learning style that follows. I'm your host, Mike Rear. Let's get into the show. In this episode with uh, Matthew Walrob, we'll discuss marketing intelligence and why business leaders can't ignore data quality. Before we jump in a little bit about Matthew, he's a pioneer and leader in technology consultancy and a globally recognized advisor. He helps his partners realize what excellent innovation management looks like. As founder and CEO of Rapid Alpha, Matthew developed a proprietary process that brings rigor to how companies evaluate and manage investments in emerging technologies. We'll get into a lot about what data is, how it's managed, but essentially how it informs company decisions and does it work? To, to, to have it do that and what kind of platforms you might use to begin tracking data, what kind of insights you might pull from the same data as somebody else. It's, it's, it's hugely enjoyable. Uh, I know that you'll, uh, that you'll like uh, Matthew a lot more uh, by the end of this session, just because he's such a wonderful human being. So uh, enjoy. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How's things? Fantastic. No complaints. No complaints. And yourself? No, exactly the same. Yeah, it's been a been a good day. I, I got to take the morning off with some friends, and we still got some sunshine here in England, and we we're able to get you know to get to the beach, have some nice lunch, and so feels like summer hung on for another day. Living the dream, living the dream, Mike. Living the dream. That it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Where go. are you in the in the world? I am in uh, Seattle, Washington. Yeah. How how are things? It's. I mean, weather-wise, we're about to uh, we're we're starting to take the turn into uh, into rainy season, which for us yeah. is about six months. Yes, yes. <laughs> every time I've been to Seattle, every time. Every time <laughs> we haven't turned on the sun for you. No, not yet. No. Uh, no. All right, we'll need to work on that, Mike. We'll need to work yeah. on that. You deserve yeah, better. Yeah, I need to come more often for sure. Let's get rolling. It's always a typical gentle start, so. I'd love you, I know a little bit about you, but I'd love you to summarize for the listeners, you know, who, who you are and the kind of hundred things that you're involved in, in, in doing. Yeah, sure. So for me, much of the business world is driven by conclusory statements. And conclusory statements are generally right statements of fact that are presented without the specific supporting evidence that the conclusion right is based upon. For us in the work that we do, or for me, right in general, my objective is to capture know-how that exists within an enterprise and directly link the conclusions to the underlying facts that drive those conclusions and hopefully creating an auditable understanding of why decisions are made and increasing the average commonly held understanding of the, the universe of know-how that exists within the enterprise. Interesting. Yeah. No, and I love that. I love the phrase conclusory evidence that there's a trail and and transparency in decision making, which is not always not always apparent in organizations. It's very hard to do when you're moving at speed. It's very hard to do. And so oftentimes what you have time to communicate generally ends up being, why are we working on this project? What we're going to be first to market. Okay, <laughs> why do you think we're going to be first to market, right? Well, what does this look like? What evidence do you have? Why are we going to be successful? Well, we're going to be successful, right? Because 
you know, we're going to take this approach, right? Our strategy for market entry, right, is uh, is going to work. Okay, well, why? Why though? Well, mm-hmm. very very little time, and and they, you end up seeing this block. You know, similarly, if you're at the bottom of the hierarchy, right, with a layer of management above you, the data that you are able to push up is greatly restricted. So it just ends up being okay. Statements of facts, right, and conclusions more conclusory statement, conclusory statements up at the top, and then the same thing, right, being pushed down the org. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to dive into so much of that. Sure. So, so what was your journey to, to today? You know, where did you start and what was your path to, 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 to where you are now? Yeah, oh, my goodness. Well, I guess my, my path to, to where I'm at really started in intellectual property. I had an opportunity very early on to draft patent applications. And that brought me into actual investments with what we would call deep, you know, deep tech right today. There was a small micro fund that was developed and we said, look, we have this giant patent portfolio of ideas with these subject matter experts. What if any of these things could actually be turned into a business? And that got me started in 2000 and just fascinated by why is it that some businesses succeed, right? And others fail. And why am I continuously seeing this pattern in the business world with those that truly are the subject matter experts that have the superior technology? Why do so few of them ever end up winning their market? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there an easy answer or did you, did, did, was there a big rabbit hole to, to go down then? <laughs> My entire career, right, is just exploring these themes. And then are there solutions? And one of the things, right, that I see is getting to a point where you can take these statements of facts, right? And then how do you back them up? What is the knowledge base, the quality of the knowledge base? How do you how do you know what you think you know? How much do you know about what you think you know? And some of these things philosophically. We have a finite amount of time on this planet. I hope there is no reincarnation. I I don't know if I could do this again, Mike. But if you have a finite amount of time and you are purpose-driven, right, as most human beings are, and you have an insatiable intellectual curiosity, how do you push yourself on projects, right, that that create the most impact, Whatever, whatever impact means for you? How do you work on those things so you can overcome a lot of these challenges that are going to be inherent? to getting to the top, right? And then building a company that you would actually want to stay at the top and have a sustained competitive advantage. Yeah, it's, and it's such an interesting thing. I mean, you know, we referenced the innovation index, but that started with, you know, one of those simple questions about 11, 12 years ago, which same product, two companies, uh, before clinical development, does it end up in the same place? And, and of course, no one, that I've ever spoken to things, the answer is yes. Yeah, the product will end up where it ends up. So you go, well, oh, so you agree that the companies are the ones adding value to their pipelines, right? That they're doing something meaningfully different. Do they know what it is that they're doing and do they know why? Is it, is it just about having smarter people or do they examine their own decisions on the, on the, on the way through? So, you know, I see that in pharmaceuticals deeply, but I mean, I'm guessing you've seen this across, you know, more than one industry. Yeah, absolutely. What becomes fascinating for me is just the the universe and competition, how competition works out. A lot of the rules are the same, but then there's these idiosyncrasies within any type of industry. So pharma generally have to be on patent. 
and you have that prime window of earnings after clinical trials right before you hit the patent cliff. Mm-hmm. That, that, those are your prime earning years. If you look at something like mining, a mining operation right buys a plot of land. What they pull out of the earth, right, is finite, what they're capable of pulling out, and then how they operate in terms of, okay, well, we have to monitor our costs, we want to increase right, the quality, we want to recover right as much as possible. Very, very different from a consumer electronics company that wants to sell cell phones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you, you know, are, are there any companies out there, you know, I've seen stories about you know, say exploration, oil exploration companies that spend a lot of time on their decision and prediction capabilities and uh, their ability to systematize that. You know, is there anyone that you see trending towards the kind of good or great versus, you know, just average or management consultancy derived process? Or It's really interesting. I, I see pockets. I see pockets within enterprises where you have people that are willing to put their neck out on the line because they're so passionate about making good use of their time. They want to work on something big. What is challenging for some of these larger organizations is how do you make these thought process processes, how, how do you get them to permeate right the culture at large? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think decision science is ready for its time in the sun? Because it's certainly, you know, everything that you just described in terms of, you know, uh, priors, in terms of biases, in terms of transparency, you know, I mean, it's not like this is new science. This is, you know, this is like Mendel and his peas versus the kind of, you know, uh, we're <laughs> today. yeah, it's, I think, just like anything else. You know, we probably both see like the the Gartner right curves, right? The height curve. What is fascinating to me is just how there is a lack of homogeneity in terms of the capabilities, awareness, and a general, in many cases, lack of appetite for this level of investigation. Many companies, as they as they progress, right, and they get to the top, they're like, well, this has been working right for us. We continue to be large, even on the decline, right? There's this ability to point to other externalities, right, and factors. But I start seeing things in financial statements, investments, press releases, what is happening with investors. And you can kind of start getting a sense that how oh, the wheels are starting to fall off. The wheels are starting to fall off. And do they have an appetite? Can the pain be large enough, right, to be able to change? And that just hasn't happened. I I don't see it. We're willing to go with that change. I think there's, you know, it's it's very interesting that you look at a a company like Amazon where the decision-making is almost left to a process, right, versus, you know, there's there's kind of pyramid organizations where, as you say, someone's going up and someone's coming back down with, you know, here's the data that we think you need to see, but, you know, there's no A-B testing, there's no, you know, there's, there's no vulnerability in a, in a in a pyramid system. Yeah, it's what becomes fascinating, even just looking at a company like Amazon, they are so large and many of these services, right, solve needs that are within the enterprise. So mm-hmm. developing a solution that they're able to use often reduce costs. Mm-hmm. And so they win right out of the gate. And then it is later as they go through with all the data that they have, they go and say, well, if we offer this right to others, right, will people buy it? It already works for us. So they're their own pilot, right? Their own test case. These are things that are challenging to recreate in other industries. Interesting. So, I mean, if I ask you a question as basic as 
how does data work? What's the, you know, what, what, would, what would your answer be? I mean, does it work? Should, shouldn't we shouldn't we investigate that? Does data work? Very spotty, right? This track record for for data. Uh, fundamentally, like human beings, and I think a lot of the information that we have available to us, there's an irrational aspect, right, to to what we do. Unclear to me that you that data as it's presented today is uh, is compelling. I don't know that data actually ultimately right wins the day i think there's so much emotion that's put on top of data this uh, not just fear of missing out but greg larkin does a great job of promoting this concept right of fear of losing power right for those that are in entrenched positions within an organization has a great book titled this might get me fired to think about people that I'm sure you work with, the individuals that I work with and how we may view ourselves is I would rather, right, lose my job than do something that I don't feel, right, is uh, is going to deliver. Taking that principle and then thinking about if I'm going to work on something compelling, how am I presenting the case in terms of the data, right, and underlying facts, massaging the data into something that is palatable for the personality that you're working with right on the other side. This is a bit of, I think, the discussion of data that is uh, currently missing. Yeah. Would you, I mean, what you just said there has reminded me of a lot of the discussion of the science, right? You know, so the science, the data, well, it's just the data will tell us, and you go, well, you're going to get the data that you went looking for. You're not going to get the data that you didn't, but you're going to present the data that you did go looking for as the as the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I think the science is often used in the same way. So, you know, I mean, I always feel the farmers particularly egregious in this, but, you know, and clearly from what you're saying, it's not the only one. <laughs> no, this is a very, this is a part of the human condition and what to me makes business so fascinating. How do you elevate ideas that have the potential to win markets within an enterprise? And then you have to deal with more human beings, right? That you want to actually stop whatever it is that they're doing and consume what it is that you're, you're pushing out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I want to draw in the strands because clearly you spent a lot of time in innovation management as well. So, you know, when we're answering questions that no one's ever answered before, you know, I think on my last podcast, I was talking with Stephen Johnson about, you know, I'm still trying to write this book called how, you know, who do you ask when no one knows? Right? So, you know, there's this essential problem. Most of our processes are set up for asking someone who does know the answer and then just doing what they said. But when no one knows, which is the sort of definition of, of innovation, who you're asking, which data are you collecting and, and, and which, you know, and, and how you, who you're presenting it to you know, really in this space, so much right of business is being able to take a question, right, and rephrase it. And for me, what I see consistently, especially when scouting emerging technologies, um, I constantly hear from people, it's amazing that you could find this information on a publicly traded company, but we think anybody can do that. What we want to know is, is how do you find information on the companies that are not publicly traded? How do you find them? How much can you find, right, about them? And to me, it becomes a very interesting exercise. And where we're arriving is 
can we get to a structured approach that helps us reframe what it is that we're actually doing? And what we'd like to, a way that we kind of present this, right, is hypothesis-based testing. So you have an idea that something works right in a particular way. If that is your hypothesis, then there should be things that you do see and things that you don't see. (laughs) And if you start finding things that you're not expecting to see, that should change your hypothesis, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then being able to go back, right, and uh, and explore. Yeah, but does it? I mean, because that, that's the question, right? Is is you know people either invent their hypothesis, their original hypothesis, or you know they say that was never really our hypothesis. We got this new one, or or it looks close enough, but we're you know so you know the data. I mean, yeah, you, I don't know. We've had some data on Alzheimer's in the last couple of days presented from a you know potentially interesting new new therapy, but although they presented a bunch of it, you've already got people polarized into it doesn't tell us anything. It tells us everything we need to know and we're excited or we're, this is this is nothing new. You know, these are all experts looking at the same data set, making very different conclusions on the basis of it. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, which hypothesis was tested is, 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 is fascinating. Yes, and it really what you hear, right, from both sides are these conclusory statements. Okay. Okay. Why is this the worst thing in the world, right? Why is it right that this could never work, right? What What do you base this on, and yeah. what you're hopefully doing in all of these conversations with with people that are pro, right? Whatever whatever data you're putting out, those that are against, can you increase the average understanding level set? But when you say these things, I'm not even sure what you mean by this word. This happens a lot with things like artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. What someone in marketing thinks artificial intelligence is is very different than someone, right, that has a PhD, right, in AI in computer science, right, and someone that might be an intern. Yeah, yeah. The level of granularity and detail and underlying assumptions, right, are all fed into these conclusory statements. So, can you methodically go through? take a technology, dissect it into its fundamental technical components, and then overlay where that technology exists in the value chain, and then now start asking some questions. So you can get rid of the universe of things that have keyword hits, right, that you see, you're like, all right, well, this is not even the right industry, right? Definitely not the right value chain. Can you eliminate these things and start getting to a story that you can tell? Well, this is why I feel this way about this technology. Started this way. It evolved to this. It's now evolving right to something else. Here's the problems and solution statements, right, that have been resolved right over time. And then these appear to be the new problem solution statements. Fascinating. Can we move ourselves right into one of these new problem solution statements, given the competencies that our company has? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, you're sort of describing this challenge of, you know, translation of assumptions that everyone you know, everyone hears an assumption the same way that they, you know, they regard it as fact or they regard it as an average of you know, wide range of stuff or, you know, or they regard it as a guess in time or, but that translation between, they say, maybe two experts or two divisions of the same company might be very different. Yeah. And just the personalities that are going to interrogate this data. A big part, right, of leadership is being okay with being wrong, mm-hmm. uh, being a little bit more patient. So trying to process right more data alleviating blind spots and then sticking right to the to the decision to to a point where you're looking at the outcome and and sometimes right that outcome isn't exactly what you expected but 
as as a leader if you're if you're leading well you're gonna be wrong a lot yeah (laughs) and maybe a question to post kind of almost a non-interview question but but you know we've been talking a lot with folks about the idea of remaining in a pre-decision mindset for as long as possible the the idea that you know there's a risk of path dependence if you could you know your your first hypothesis probably limited everything that you look for after that but if you hadn't made that decision and that prediction and you regarded yourself as pre-decision in the way that you know Annie Duke would talk about you know playing a hand of poker which is you know for a long time in that hand you haven't made a decision yet you're you know you're looking for what the decision is going to be that that mindset is a very different one than the one where you're you know you're looking for confirmatory or or kind of you know or data that you know contradicts what your what your original hypothesis was yeah amazing which is very different than what you hear generally, right, about innovation, the C-suite, corporate developments. There's this sometimes a permeation, right, that, oh, well, the, the enterprise doesn't make decisions. Mm-hmm. No one ever makes any decisions, right? Sitting right. around kind of doing this, right, had a great idea, submitted all this paperwork. Someone changed, right, the template and PowerPoint. So I have to retype up my, my, now I submit it and like, oh, someone was sick. So they didn't have the quarterly meeting that they normally do. So now it's pushed out another month, like very, very different from, from what you're, what you're talking about. Or, the, or just the collection of evidences, you know, if this was true, how would we know? What would we see? You know, how would we test it? You know, all those kind of things become very interesting. But at a basic level, how do you see data uh, impacting company decisions? You know, is it a, you know, is it, it, it are they or are they not? Are the decisions impacting data? Yeah, I'm sure that my sample set, right, is uh, is biased. I'm sure it's biased. But the general impression that I have is is that those that have an actual pain point, those that are in a company, they're like, man, we want like gangbusters forever, and it's just been terrible the past you know, for whatever the time period is, haven't broken through or we made a really, really big bet and it didn't work out. And now we're gun shy. How do we break out of this? Right. And these are a lot of the the companies that fortunately for me are attracted to, to what we, what we're very passionate about doing. Yeah. Uh, Actually, so what a great opportunity. So tell me more about Rapid Alpha and what you're doing and, you know, what, what problems you are solving. Yeah, well, we really like to understand why people proclaim to know what they think they know. The things that we hear a lot from the executives that we're able to work with is oftentimes we want to remove blind spots, right? We're going through this and we find a lot of the confirmation across the enterprise, right? But we want to see if someone else with fresh eyes maybe has a different perspective so we can feel more confident, right, about the about the decisions that we're making. And along those lines, the things that we're finding and we're moving into is more actual software development. Can we take a methodology of exploring the universe of publicly available information and create a scaffolding around it that fosters much better discussion about the future of the company? Interesting. So those people that have invited you in, you know, are they opportunity seeking or are they looking to solve problems or? Yeah, you know, so we really, so we see people in product development. That's a big one. Mergers and acquisitions is another one. Not as often invited in from the C-suite. It's usually some type of change agent that's uh, that's in the enterprise. I mean, a tiny little company like mine, the web presence, right, isn't exactly there. 
but through word of mouth with with individuals that are more practitioners, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly have their uh, their boots in the trenches, rolling up mm-hmm. their sleeves, and uh, and are a bit muddy. We we get an opportunity to work with them, but it's very much someone in M and A as you're going through and you're doing the scouting. You know you're going to find yourself in a meeting, and there's going to be somebody in there that's spent a lot of time searching and is looking for a company name that has not been on your radar and is not going to ask if you've heard about the company. They're going to ask some like deep probing question, right? To catch you on your back foot. Like Juan never heard of this company. (laughs) What the hell are you talking about? And then the next brutal follow on is like, well, why do you think this company right is the best? Why do you think they're the best for us? Mm-hmm. And ideally, in that situation, you can go and say, given what our company capabilities are, what the technical stack of this company is, what mm-hmm. they do, and where we need to go, irrespective of what the universe of solutions look like, this is the one that's best poised for us in terms of what we're doing. Interesting. And so telling that story, right, is, is what we're what we're working on doing. Interesting. So what would your, you know, what would you say your kind of special source? Is it is it the process? Is it the people? Is it, you know, some combination of the two? Oh, man. Well, for for us, the process is conducive to the types of people that, that we work with. You have people that are insanely intellectually curious mm-hmm. and the level of quality of detail that they want to put on projects, right, is... Mm-hmm borderline you know like uh, i don't i don't know like for me i like to tell people you know i really belong in the back of the shop right with uh, other individuals that weren't hugged enough as a child right like this is a big part of the fulfillment to get to that one point in a conversation where people are like i never even thought of this this way yeah and then see them unlock and then they're sprinting a mile away right on on what steps they can take and oh man now i gotta catch up i can't believe right that 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 this just happened. Uh, but the challenge with uh, with individuals like this is, is we have right in as a business is eventually you have to stop <laughs> and you have to deliver the results, right? right? And this is this uh, this fine fine balance that we've been working on, uh, on, on figuring out what is the balance? How do we meet consistently our customers with where they're at as opposed to where we would like them right to be? Mm. Yeah, real challenge, real challenge. Yeah, no, I, I recognize all of that because, you know, we, I think we're the same. We hire for curiosity, but I'd be interested in what your kind of, uh, you know, your green flags or your kind of, yes, this looks like the right, you know, these these people should be working here. What's, you know, what's your uh, approach to that? Really appetite, person. The, a lot of the skills that we do can be learned. A lot of the methodologies that we have, we, we have someone who didn't have any experience in pharma. And uh, I think we shared some of the insights for this Roche report that we put in, but just used the methodology. And now she's forgotten more about pharma than I'll ever know. Just because she has a methodic way, right, of tackling an entire company, its drug pipeline. You go through thousands of clinical trials, right, for one company, every startup that they've entertained, the IP portfolios, right, of all these companies. You're going to learn a ton, but it's this purpose-driven, why are we looking at this document? What is it that we're hoping to extract from it in terms of knowledge? It's uh, that that desire and passion for that intellectual curiosity. That's what, that's what keeps us going. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I mean, the, the theme of this series is, you know, asymmetric learning, the idea that, you know, learning becomes your competitive advantage in, a, in most scenarios where innovation is involved. Yeah. And, and focusing yeah. That, uh, that, that you know, the company's efforts on learning you know, faster or better or deeper or with, a, or with an insight that someone else couldn't get. You know, I think that's exactly the, you know, what, what you're describing there is that, you know, you've got to want to look for it and you've got to want to know that you've seen it when you've seen it. Yeah. And then if just going through the things that you have with Idea Pharma, you look at these reports and you look at these insights and one of the, maybe it's a challenge, maybe it's the most beautiful part of it is that you're looking at a snapshot, right? Point in time, we've done the analysis up to this date. Talk to me in 30 days. And let me tell you what's happened right in these past 30 days, you know, 90 days from now, six months from now, what's happening. And if you've plotted this, these data points, right, in a place where you can go through and actually see movement, you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. This company was way down here. Now, all of a sudden, look at their racing ahead. What the heck happened in this time? Mm-hmm. How How was this possible? Mm-hmm. How did they go from barely qualifying right to fit on one of my charts to top five now in terms of sales right and revenues for this product yeah. and uh, yeah so i'll be interested in your thoughts on this because i get asked this question a lot I mean, two questions one is you know was it the company was it the team right because you know a lot of what we're doing is looking back historically at how they did rather than how they might do going forward so it's you know we needed it to be objective and cold in that way so yeah you know you can tell us all the stories you want, but if you didn't launch and you didn't launch successfully, there's no, you know, <laughs> we're not going to count it. And then people go, well, oh, that's great because, you know, company X did really well. And they go, well, maybe the drug just succeeded despite the company or, you know, or you know, rather than because of, and that's always hard to unpick, right? Because then you've got to know more than just what the data told you. Yeah. Um, so and I think that's one of the challenges is that the publicly available information can only tell you so much about what went on in terms of, you know, that room with that decision or, and these things are always fascinating to me because when I look at this, I say, well, there's a, there's an option C, right? It is timing. Yeah, you yeah. get the timing right. It can absolve you of a lot of sins. You know, the right. universe is a very interesting place. The universe doesn't actually want to change right at all in the business world and in a business context. It does not want to do it. But if you smash against the universe long enough, hard enough, right? You get that timing, right? Then all of a sudden the friction, right? Changes and then now you have momentum. Very, very strange thing. So for me, even in looking at the universe of publicly available information, how much data do you need and in what areas to make a decision that unlocks timing for you? Yeah. And then rely on your team, right? To get the job done. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I, yeah, and those case studies, you know, we continue to publish those, right? Of, you know, markets where first and second did well and the third didn't. And you go, well, who wants to be third anymore? You know, who wants to, and what did the people who were third do differently than the people that were first and second? And, you know, that, that, that becomes a challenge because people don't really know. You know, they don't, well, they don't want to admit that they took six months to make a decision instead of, instead of, you know, making a quick decision. So, yeah, I mean, so many of those things happen and you, I think it becomes important to take a look at the characteristics and attributes of companies that in the very recently in an industry have risen to dominance. And this is one of the actually what the reason why we picked Roche for pharma 
You take a company that 20 years ago was not in the top 10 in terms of prescription pharma sales. They're in a pretty shabby position in terms of what their pipeline looked like in terms of clinical trials. Didn't really have much of a methodology to to turn that thing around. Had made some strategic investments in Gen and Tech. Had a change in CEO. And then coinciding right with these things, we start seeing for us, we have a baseline of 10 years of studying and investigation. And because the CEO didn't change out, we felt there's probably, uh, this is probably a good case for us to take a look at. So how do you go from being number 11, right, to number one? What do you do? And it's not like they had a straight shot to the top. It wasn't like they built success after success after success. After finding some success, you look at their top drugs in their pipeline and patent cliff, right, is hitting on their tops. How do you offset that? Fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Absolutely. And, you know, and then the second thing I always end up having a lot of questions about is, you know, what are the right KPIs for, you know, for some like pharmaceutical development? So well, there's only one KPI, which is did you launch and did you launch successfully, right? You know, all the rest are surrogate measures. And it's a bit like trying to predict the outcome of a soccer game or anything using metrics like running stats or, or you know, numbers of crosses. Maybe they're meaningful, but what if they're not, right? What if they're just more noise in the system? So, and I would love to get your your input on this. One of the things that we that we started to look at, and I've got a bit of a background in in finance. Like, what if you took your innovation portfolio and you try to balance it out in the same same way you will with the stock portfolio? Mm-hmm. What if you looked at portfolio mix, right, as a portion, right, of your KPIs and then mm-hmm. overlay, right, company capabilities mm-hmm. on top of that to see what you can do. And for the Roche report, we got to a point where investigating the company, we can almost imagine what it was like in the C-suite talking to the board, right, about these things. We could reverse engineer the budgets that they were spending and then just the shocking regularity of the types of investments, right, that they made, what they mm-hmm. did with those investments afterwards, like, wow, okay, there's a lot of process here. I'd love to talk with somebody at Roche because the the things that we have in terms of insights, like the numbers are so uniform and they always balance out over a three-year period. It's crazy. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, I'd be interested in whether they know that, right? You know, you, you yes. might be, they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know that your your organization, the way it manifests itself, yeah. results in these things, yeah. right? The yeah. disruptive innovation to incremental three to yeah. three to one in terms of results, incremental innovation outperforms, right? They're disruptive. Yet disruptive is a primary driver, right? Of some of their growth. And we mm-hmm. go and we plot what we expect to see from the patent cliff, right? And their revenues from their existing compounds doing this. And then you overlay the growth that they have with things that have come out of clinical trial and it perfectly offsets it. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, uh, well, it's a beautiful industry for those kind of data, right? And it's, uh, I, say, I, I don't know whether necessarily that's a, because you know, then you would be unpacking your decision process instead of your investment thesis or your kind of forward-facing, you know, projections, your five, ten-year projections. And I don't know many companies to a question that do at least even have two processes running, right, to, to see which one's best. They just have a process that they have decided works, and it works well enough to, you know, keep them going. Yeah, it's with with Roche, what was fascinating 
is you see the investment. And for somebody that's a value investor, what do you do? You're looking at kind of distressed or underpriced assets, and they hit phase one clinical trials the hardest. It is not even close. Phase one, lots of shots on goal. And then the interesting things that they do at almost for every lead indication that they have, right, they end up coming with almost seven more either indications or alternative delivery mechanisms. Hmm. And in that, right, they double the average success rate that you see, right, on a, on a, on a new compound. Hmm. Fascinating. But they, you see like immediately like, okay, they get something, they hit oncology hard. Hmm. But then what becomes fascinating is, is even when they don't have a primary indication on oncology, they end up with a secondary indication and oncology. And now we're seeing the rise in proliferation, right, of orphan drug status in terms of what some of their initial indications are and where they're pivoting to with their secondary. Yeah. Wow. Okay. No, I mean, I think that idea of, uh, you know, pre-decision, right, if you used your phase one with that mindset, which I think is really where Roche and certainly Genentech were, I mean, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, right? Yeah. A lot of it was exploratory. A lot of it was pivoted. You know, they pivoted a lot in, in those phases when things things didn't work out the way they thought they were, but then they went, oh, actually, the thing that happened looked more, more interesting than the thing that didn't. And, you know, if you're in that mindset, it's fine. But if all you've done is a confirmatory, you know, you know it's, it's a conclusive, right? This study showed or didn't show the thing that we wanted it to show. That's yeah. a very different kind of company. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure for the work that you do and the people that you work with, it's how do you, I mean, how do you find these individuals that are interested in these, these experiments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Running it well. And you'd think, I mean, based on your hiring process, our hiring process, most scientists are experimental, right? They're, you know, they don't always think they know. And there's a process of of finding out, but that gets abandoned when it gets to business and the the commercial people come in and they they think there's an easy path. Um, I'll be interested in exploring, I mean, the, you know, in terms of tracking data, in terms of, you know, this has become an issue for us, you know, what platforms, what tools, you know, what, you know, what can people do to implement you know, better data organization, let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, in terms of tools, there are certainly some sources of information that we subscribe to. Mine is uh, one of our favorites out of Chicago. They have a rockin' IP data set. They have, uh, you know, SCC filings in a searchable, explorable way. That's a fantastic thing to have access to. Markets some press releases. It's a it's a fantastic way for us to get to the raw and underlying data set. We've attempted to try a number of other search tools. We probably go through, you know, just slightly under a new tool a month in terms of exploration to see what we can get get out of a tool. So we're testing somewhere between eight and 10, right? A year. Very few end up sticking with us. We feel like most people are interested in trying to predict what it is that I'm looking for, but don't actually give me the tools and allow me to leverage my experience to find what I'm looking for and eliminate all the garbage that I don't. Instead, yeah. people want to turn turn myself and people like me or people that are executives in companies into, into data analysts. And mm-hmm. That, that's a horrible outcome for business. 
<laughs> That's a terrible outcome. I don't like that at all. <laughs> so what? why do you think they're doing that wrapping at the end of a, of a, of a surgery? Just like you see with a lot of giant companies, you know, why, why would you pivot? Why would you move on to the next thing? It's like, oh, well, we're making money here. We're making money now. And in an industry where you can go from, uh, oh, well, everybody else is using a, a SQL database and that's as boring as can be. I'm going to help you visualize your data because I'm using a graph database. Yeah. Like, all right. So you went from bar charts to circles. There are some relationships right in there. But uh, this isn't getting me any closer, right, to what's going on in this into this data set. I want to know what I think about these things, and I want to make it audible. So if somebody looks at, and this is the way we try to work on our reports, here's an entire executive summary. These are our conclusory statements. You can click on any of these things and get to the source material. And it's tagged and flagged and enriched with metadata to say, they are talking about the technology. This is the technology readiness level. We learned something about appetite, right, for the market to consume this out of this document. And here it is. It's all highlighted for you. You can go on your own discovery journey yeah. and, and find where I'm wrong. Yeah. Like, yeah. hey, man, this, this all makes sense. But were you aware of this? Well, let's go to the data set. No, I have a giant donut hole there. I don't have that in my data set. And they get like, aha, you know, ah, we're, we're, we're better than you. Like, I like to think that if we're on the same team and our goal is a yeah. thorough knowledge and understanding of what your landscape is, the fact that we could identify a shortcoming in what we searched. And now I can go back in and say, are there things that we can do in our process, right, to shore this up? Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. Sometimes the juice isn't worth the squeeze. But people can at least look at my report and understand where its limitations are going to be, which I don't think you get in a lot of other a lot of other market reports. Yeah, how interesting that kind of vulnerability of you and the client to to to, to take that journey together. Hey, you're going to go you go to McKinsey, right? And you think everything that in that report, right, is 100% accurate, and you build a business around that, you find yourself like CNN, right, launching a 10 million app, right, for getting news stories that people didn't want to get from their from their cable provider, right? But now you think they want to pay for it again, right? In an app. What I do is flawed, Mm -hmm. but I think you can get an understanding of where the shortcomings are. And if you have an understanding where the shortcomings are, I think it becomes easier to fill in those gaps. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to go back all the way back to your start in IP and and you said you, know, you used the what you used the what if phrase, which uh, I was reminded recently. I was talking to someone who used to be in IP at, in, in a pharma company. And said, you know, back in the olden days, they used to ask us, you know, how did it get things done? Now they just come and tell us to do things, right? They tell us to file this, file that, but they don't, they don't ask us, you know, our, our thoughts or our creativity around it. So, and I, said, I didn't know there was that creative option with, with IP. Said, oh no, you know, if you invite us into the into the mix, we can give you all sorts of ways of doing things. That uh, if you stop asking, you know, you, you kind of get that thing. So, did you find that was an important starting point for you, or where it became important? is that it gave me a structured approach to understand how value is created in an enterprise. If you build an intellectual property asset, and for a lot of times you, if you find yourself in litigation and you say that damages have been incurred, right, by a competitor who is infringing your product, 
the a logical question that comes out is well, well how much were you damaged mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay if i have to dissect a cell phone right and i want to understand what the value is from a subcomponent of the technology of the camera mm-hmm. how do i appraise that so it gave me a very it gave me a background to be able to describe things in interesting ways it gave me a multidisciplinary exposure to law to business and marketing, which is a great thing for someone like me. I'm very much a systems person, very mm-hmm. much a systems person. So give me this great way of, of building the scaffolding in high conflict, high stake situations where really the life of a company could be in the balance. Certainly a hundred million billion dollar right transaction could be there on the table. And uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Just listening to you talk about essentially attribution of value, right, in the in a in a, in, a, in a system, which I know you know it's one of the hidden you know challenges in some of my Google is you know who who, who gets paid for what in, in in a search engine becomes this massive thing and no one even knows it's going on under the hood. Uh, but yeah. you, you know if you're going to unpick an iPhone to to, to to see who you know who generated what. I guess there needs, you, you can't just do this in a day or with a kind of a hunch. There needs to be a system. Yeah, and at least for where things are today, right? There's a, there's a bit of art, there's a bit of science, some mysticism right in there, a bit of maybe sometimes the process, right, is driven towards a conclusion, right, that you're trying to achieve, right, within a, a certain range. It's It's a real challenge, but that, But bringing that thought process into product development, how much value could you create here? Okay, uh, we think it's going to be this big. Okay, great. But who's buying this? Why are they buying it? What is it in their demographic, their profile, their buying behaviors that leads you to believe that this is the the, the right conclusion, that this is going to get us to where we're going? We constantly are faced from... uh, from people in product development, and to a lesser extent, right, we see this uh, this drive from the C-suite. We allocated this budget for R&D. We have a much larger universe of options that are out there and available to us. How do we pick, right, the best projects? Mm -hmm. And then you have these fantastic philosophical sessions, questions, right, about, well, what is best? What does best even mean for you, right? What are these outcomes? And can you get to a point where you take a project that will improve employee satisfaction, right? Empirically, it'll, it'll give you a lift by 20% versus an R&D effort that will cut costs, right? By 10% by engaging in it versus a project, right? That will drive an increase of 20% in revenue. How do you compare those things? Yeah, yeah. Well, not easily. I mean, people try, right? I mean, they're, they're constantly at R&D productivity and... They, they still love the averages, right? It's because it's easy to do averages across an industry, which way harder to do it within an organization. But I, yeah, no, I think that, I mean, our industry has, yeah, my industry has largely, so, you know, assumes IP, right? So there's an assumption that IP is relatively straightforward. It's going to be fixed. It's going to be, so, and they like to simplify. So they go, right, that's that's the thing that's fixed. Now we can vary some of the other stuff. But, you know, I, I guess you know that it's not fixed, right? It will becomes interesting in IP. You just go back to Roche because I've <laughs> spent a lot of my life, right, these past couple of years delving into them. Yeah. You look at their intellectual property strategy. It is what is disclosed. Um, one of their drugs, right, on patent for 39 years. 
Mm-hmm. There's some strategy that goes into something like that. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, even like 20 years ago, the desire to go into biologics and targeted therapies instead of you know, small molecules, you know, because those things are way harder to copy, even if you don't have IP. So, yeah. Uh, you know, this, this, this I, I love the kind of complexity of that, the uncertainty of that, but you know, that's often sits at odds with, uh, you know, this this kind of belief in what you did before is going to be fine. Yeah. Are you optimistic about? You know the future of data and and where it's going and you know what makes your eyes sparkle when you think about it. The thing, so I'm I'm very optimistic. One of the reason being, you know, I know for us we're working on a product right to take all of this know-how, be able to throw it right into a dashboard, and we're looking at attempting to be able to interact with your enterprise through pictures. This mm-hmm. is what we do. This is our value chain and, and logging into, you know, normally it's a SharePoint site or maybe you're in Salesforce, but seeing a picture right as a reminder day in, day out. Oh, this is what our business does. I work in this department. Oh, I can investigate what is going on out there in the world in technology and financials and competition, new startups that are out there, right? Getting capital. I can interact with these things right through images. I feel like if I get to a point where I'm able to launch this right with the right partners, it should attract a lot of other individuals that are working in very boring graph databases right now, trying to make something happen with enriched data. And Mm -hmm. it looks to Mm -hmm. me, but being able to show sometimes what best could be, there's a lot of people out there way brighter than me that are going to look at what we have. And they're like, oh, man, put this kid back in preschool <laughs> right where he belongs. Now it's time for the pros to show you what can be done. And I think that's going to be really exciting for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you want to go looking at it, that's the, you know, as you say, if you want the McKinsey report, which tells you the answer at the end of the, or, you know, or on, or on slide two, then, you know, you, that's probably got some time in it as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely you can. I mean, just the challenge that we see repeatedly, one of the biggest obstacles that we've had is the data stories, they're so different to put them into a template, we realize immediately how much we're leaving right off the table, right? In terms of value, being constrained, right? By a template to populate that template, so much information, right? Is missed. And you can't possibly go from a, a, a McKinsey report or BCG or any of these, these large enterprises, right? That'll take, they'll take a half a million dollars from you. They'll deliver a result in six to nine months. And in the meantime, right? This is, okay, well, we're waiting for this. We're going to get some conclusions and the things that I've seen as a, as a recipient of some of these reports and where people come to us having been recipients of this report, it's like, great, we got a bunch of information back that we already knew, but because it has right the right header, it is ends up being right more compelling for the, for the decision makers, right? It's a very much a, you know, exercise, but where's the connection to the capabilities of the company? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, I, I, you know, in terms of decision science, I mean, you know, Richard Feynman, Edward Tuft kind of, you know, took apart in the Apollo mistakes and blamed PowerPoint. And then, 
you know, we're in 2022 and people, you know, I just saw a Twitter thread about, you know, McKinsey's secrets for making great slide decks as if like the slide decks, the point, and, you know, they're doing slightly nicer Harvey balls, whatever is the, is, is the goal of life. And you go, well, to your point, you know, what did you leave out? What did you show me? What did you decide that I thought was important? And, you know, what might that, what else might I have been interested in? I, you know, we've been doing this journey together. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm aware that I'm kind of eating into the time that I had with you, Matthew. Oh, sure. um, yeah. I, I, I'm going to ask you things like, you know, your favorite books. I'm going to ask how, how people can find you uh, easily uh, online or elsewhere. So let's, let's start with the books. Are there any books that you'd recommend that we read and we get us a little bit closer to your insights? Oh, man. All right. So as a, as a masochist, there's certainly some books on leadership that, that I enjoy. Jocko Willink has a book, Extreme Ownership, fascinated right by the principles and uh, in owning things. That's a good one. Greg Larkin's got a great, a great book for anybody that's up against up against the machine, right? That is their company. This might get me fired. That's a that's a fantastic one, and it's a real, real interesting way to have a career. Yeah, I'm gonna do this. I'm really you know pulling the pin out of a hand grenade, right, and chucking it in, and this is what's gonna happen. But I'm I'm confident in what I'm doing, right? It's for the betterment of the company, you know, steering, uh, steering the ship. Those are, those are real good ones. You know, I really like, I do enjoy a lot of history books. They're fascinating to me. Yeah. A lot of history, read up a lot on the Civil War. World War II is a big one. A strategy, managing people. How do people make decisions, right, in the most dire circumstances? And then the, the human condition, right, as mm. part of this experience is mm. fascinating to me. Yeah, uh, I'm getting a sense that you don't want the pre-digested versions that, we, that you were taught earlier. Give me the data, man. I, you almost, uh, you know, as, chi- as a child, and you know, at least over here in the U.S., there's these books, right? You, you kind of choose your own journey. It's like, man, yeah. give me closer to the facts. Give me closer to the raw data. And I wonder, I wonder if I, how I might piece together the story. I wonder if I can get to the raw data, if yeah. that might give me right some insight that maybe no one else has had. Yeah. And uh, certainly I find these things translate very well into the, into the business world. I bet you do. Yeah. I remember reading one, I think it was a Stephen Pinker examination of violence. And he, he got to the civil war and examined how seldom the weapons were fired, right? You know, when they were picked up from the battlefield, how they often, most of them had never been used. You know, this kind of idea that most people avoid, you know, killing people if they can. And then the trauma tends to come from some of that stuff. Like that. So I, I can only imagine how much you would get from, you know, some of those data. Yeah, absolutely. And personal correspondence, Abraham Lincoln is very well documented uh, over here in the U.S. We're starting to see a proliferation, right, of of a new spin on on some of these topics and what his presidency meant for uh, meant for the United States. And the thing that I'm immediately struck by are the conclusory statements, and mm-hmm. it doesn't always jibe with what I understand from the underlying data. So it's just fascinating. It, it seems to me increasingly in this world with uh, with things that happen in terms of press releases. Obviously, we just got through a, through a pandemic. Understanding what it is we know and why we think we know it and how much we want to share. I find I find people against the critique of well, people just want a simple story, right? Mm-hmm. You can't inundate them right with with facts. That's a very dangerous thought, and I'm not I'm not sure why. Why it would be so in vogue 
it's highly suspicious to me. I don't find people to be to be like that. People yeah. want the inside scoop and you know, even in innovation management, know-how, knowing something that no one else in your enterprise does, right, is a form of is a form of power. And being yeah. able to see these things, hopefully with this data revolution that we have, yeah. we can encourage that intellectual curiosity in the population at large. I think it would greatly benefit society. Yeah. Greatly. Yeah. No, no, knowing something no one else knows is you know has to be one of the goals, right, of you know development of any product. Number. Yeah, never mind the investigation of what just happened happened in the pandemic. That traditional good versus evil story is not gonna, you know, can't last for long. You would yeah. hope. Yeah, hopefully. If someone wants to find you, Matthew, what's the what's what what's the best way for them to do that? Uh yeah, sure. So certainly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, uh, Matthew.walrab. Yeah, that's a great spot. I'm somewhat of a prolific prolific poster with my long format. Obviously, I'm a very verbose person. Love love talking. I wish I was better at writing. Love to be more succinct. That's a, that's a good spot for me. And then we do some posting on our on our webpage in terms of kind of uh, thought pieces that we put together. RapidAlpha.com. Amazing. We'll put as much as we can into the show notes as well. Appreciate it. This has been wonderful. Thank you for such an enjoyable you know tour around your 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 thought process. Is yeah, anything, likewise. Anything you wish I'd asked you that I that I forgot to to do. Oh man, I just, uh, you know, the things that really fascinated me really are on how you construct, you know, multiple shots on goal and for the work that you do in working with these companies, right? I see these fantastic, phenomenal successes that you have. I think one of the stats is seven out of uh, what, 10 of the, the the best results, right? That have come out of, uh, out of pharma. Eight, eight, eight to 15 in the last year. Yeah. 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 Mike, Mike, how? You know, how? Well, yeah, well, I think because we're interested in the process, right? It, 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 it's, it's a systems thinking instead of a, uh, instead of a knowledge. Yeah, I, I don't have the answers, but we know how to go looking for them. That's the, you know, a bit like you. That's the, that, that's the point. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. That's it for this week's episode of Idea Collider. To continue the conversation, visit our website at ideapharma.com. Follow us in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm Mike Rea, wishing you great success.